Hello, everybody. Josh Brown here, back for another great episode on Franchise Euphoria. Well, today's episode is brought to you by IndieFranchiseLaw.com, a leading resource in the franchise space to help you if you're considering buying a franchise, turning your business into a franchise, or growing your business through a licensing or franchise structure. So go on, check it out, IndieFranchiseLaw.com. I think you'll find a lot of valuable and free information as you continue to kind of weigh franchising and licensing and the growth of your business. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of Franchise Euphoria, I'm thrilled to welcome John Kutak, who is the president of the Whimsy Cookie Company. Founded in 2006 and franchising since 2018, the Whimsy Cookie Company is a petite bakery that specializes in custom cookies. Started by one mom in her kitchen, Whimsy is now co-owned by founder Lori Suriff and Collins Tui Smith, as famed by the Hollywood blockbuster The Blind Side. Together, the duo has grown Whimsy from a one-woman operation to a national favorite, with fans including Reese Witherspoon, Tim McGraw, and Miranda Lambert. Focused on delivering delicious treats with a personal touch, the Whimsy Cookie Company serves specialties ranging from chocolate chip buttercream sandwiches, cookies stuffed with Oreo, decorated sugar cookies, to any of the eight flavors of the fan favorite Whimsy Gooey Butter Cookies. Headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee, Whimsy has eight franchise locations open and 12 in development across the South. And John, the guest today, brings a plethora of experience to his role as president at the Whimsy Cookie Company, which he shares in this interview. So without further ado, here's my interview with John Kutak. Hello, John. Welcome to Franchise Euphoria. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? Doing great. I'm excited to hear about your story and learn about the Whimsy Cookie franchise because I'm not familiar, but in doing a little bit of research prior to this interview, you guys have a really fascinating background story that I'd love for you to dive into. But before we do, tell us about yourself and how you got involved in the franchise world. Sure. So I did a number. It's interesting. I um, have an engineering degree from the University of Texas and never worked a day at it. I actually went into the operational training program with Brinker International, the restaurant group out of Dallas out of college and stayed with them for quite some time. Then went into uh, private equity. And then I went over to Clear Choice Dental Implants, which is not necessarily a franchise model, but it's set up very similarly with its structure. And it kind of got me a lot of exposure with multi-unit management. From there, pivoted over to WellBiz Brands, where I was the chief operating officer. And WellBiz owns uh, Elements Massage, is the biggest brand uh, that WellBiz controls. From there, took over as president of Growler USA, which is a craft beer franchise concept. And coincidentally, uh, just a gentleman that I've known for quite some time out of California had been in touch with the founders of Whimsy Cookie here in Tennessee. I hadn't heard of it either, mainly for geographical reasons, and reached out and asked me if I was interested. And at first I was like, hmm, I'm not sure if I am. But um, I started to dig into the brand and the backstory and the potential, and it really struck me. So, you know, I fully committed and I've already relocated down to Memphis and you know, haven't been able to experience a lot of it. It was uh, raining for months when I first got here and then it was locked down. So I'm excited to have things open up a little bit, hopefully. Well, so tell us about Whimsy Cookie. You know, tell us about the brand and how it kind of evolved. So Lori Suraf is the founder um, and she's still the majority owner across the board between all the LLCs. And 
she was producing these one-of-a-kind sugar cookies, highly skilled decorator out of her home for special occasions and things of that nature, and started to actually do it as a business out of the house. From there, about 12 years ago, invested in a brick-and-mortar location, and it was really meant to just be more of an industrial kitchen. It wasn't meant to be a storefront, but the word of mouth here in Memphis got so strong that it actually ended up being a retail location, even though it was more of an, a, an industrial area. And that kind of sparked everything. There was a, um, a crossover, I believe, at their children's schools with Collins Tui, who is the daughter from the Blindside story. She's the real-life daughter of that, that family story. And there was a crossover with the Baltimore Ravens with Michael Orr. And it really just became a really strong business. Collins is a co-owner as well, has invested, moved the location to where it is now, which is a landmark here in Memphis, about 10 years ago. Very well known. Aaron Suraf is her husband. He was a financial planner for years and years and years and years. He became full-time with Whimsy. They decided to go into franchising about three years ago. So it's ramped up fairly quickly. We'll soon have about 10 locations. And they were saying, okay, we need, you know, really kind of build out our executive team so we can scale appropriately. Because there's a lot of opportunities with the brand because it's just, uh, just people just like it. <laughs> so I can't say it in any other way. So that's what we're trying to do. You know, obviously with everything that's going on, it's been a little bit of a, a strange times. But, you know, the brand itself is just happy. Product is, is through the roof. You know, how do we figure out this delivery process and consistent execution? So all the things that any young franchise group would, would struggle with, we're going through as well. But the foundation of it is incredible. I'm, I'm excited. Well, so to touch on, you know, the, the blind side story, that, that was the movie that was essentially Michael Orr's life story, right? Where a family in, in Tennessee took him in and then he goes on to become a professional football player. Is that right? Correct. And so their cross this path just by chance, you know, just by the fact that their kids were in the same school together. And then sounds like she really liked the cookies. And so there became an opportunity. Is that, is that right? That's exactly right. You know, it's interesting. You know, you talk about how it's kind of grown. And, you know, when they first set out, it was really supposed to be more of just an industrial type kitchen, which you hear a lot with these kind of stories, right? I mean, it was it was sort of, hey, we got to get out of our own kitchen. Let's go either do some sort of shared kitchen or just have some separate space. Is the model today built around a retail location? It is. And I'll give you some thoughts on this. So all of our current locations are fully built out with a very large top of the line kitchen associated with it. And as we start to think about brand expansion and market penetration and then quality control at the same time, I think a smarter long-term play is going to be more of a hub and spoke model where you're heavy invested in the original location with the commercial kitchen associated with it and a beautiful, beautiful storefront. Uh, the interiors of all the locations are incredible. But then being able to branch out into a local market, as an example, we've got a Fayetteville location where we're discussing talking about doing storefronts just in Rogers and Bentonville with no kitchen whatsoever. And I think that's going to be a better way to scale. Just the capital investment in commercial kitchens, obviously, is the heaviest portion of it. So it's a way for operators to not only maintain their quality control, but also be able to have the retail presence there locally that they would desire. 
it's interesting. It reminds me, and obviously they're two totally different models, but it's like the dry cleaner that has the drop locations, right? But doesn't right. actually do the dry cleaner. So the idea being that there's going to be, you know, a face for Whimsy Cookie, but we'll keep the cost down for the franchisee because, as we all know, the equipment, the ovens, the refrigerators, the stove, I mean, all that stuff. That's what is the real expense in a build-out. So you're just going to be working on or ha are working on a design where you're going to have, you know, the delivery component or the distribution component to your locations is going to become very key. And obviously every market doesn't support that model depending on its size and how what's the close proximity to other kind of urban or suburban markets. The Faithful Woman is a very good example. We also have a location in South Lake, Texas, the Dallas area, Fort Worth, you know, even Denton, things of that nature would be a natural way for that to move forward as well for that operator. But yeah, I mean, I think you have to be innovative. You want to grow your system responsibly. You want your, your operators to be able to do as much as they possibly can from a revenue standpoint without going crazy on fixed costs. So it's a natural progression, I think. Well, I mean, speaking of innovation, speaking of, you know, change, responding to change, obviously we're in the midst right now of COVID-19. You know, we're at a point where things are starting to open back up, but I think we're still in that stage of people wondering and thinking about, okay, is there going to be a rebound? What type of rebound? What happens if we fully open up? How has this given you either pause or thoughts about how you guys are going to continue to tweak your model as you go forward? Yeah, it's been interesting for us. I will tell you, we've got three locations, Fayetteville, Tuscaloosa, and Clemson, that were heavily reliant on a university system. So that's been a challenge in and of itself for those particular locations. When I would say Clemson probably the least so, just because it's got more of a population base on an annual basis, but Tuscaloosa and Fayetteville, I mean, it's heavily reliant on the population driven from the university. So that was one aspect that really kind of hit hard. But the other one is, okay, we were technically considered an essential business when you look at all the definitions of the orders that I, I've been reading. And interesting, and I'm not going to get into any kind of political angles on this, but it was interesting to see how the orders varied across the states and municipalities. So that was interesting. You don't have to say it, but I could say, yeah, it was very interesting <laughs> yeah. to see. I mean, we've got, we've got scenario like in Indiana, I don't care which side you're on, but you know, like the malls are opening up before a lot of the other places and, and nobody can tell me it's not because the mall owners have a lot of power of persuasion <laughs> because of their connections. Cause you know, I'm seeing like where large malls are opening up before small mom and pop shops. And you kind of like scratch your head a little bit and go, well, how, how is somebody going to social distance easier in a mall than they would mm -hmm. in this, you know, one-off location. But that that's just part of the deal right now. That's just it part is. of what everybody has to deal with, you know? So um, technically essential for us, all of our locations, stayed open for the most part. I would say the Atlanta location, Atlanta got hit harder than the majority of our other locations. And it was very much a heavier lockdown there. So they're still kind of figuring the way through to a reopening process. Everyone else kind of operated straight through. Now we were able to allow guests to come into the shops. However, we made the decision to not do that for a lot of reasons. Safety obviously being the first one. Um, we were trying to stagger uh, shifts with employees, not letting guests come in, really focusing on curbside, really making a push on third-party delivery. And I think that's going to go through an evolution as well, because in all honesty, and if there's a lot of franchisees that are out there listening, 
it's not a great profit center with commissions or the charges that the delivery systems or the delivery providers charge you. And it was more of, I want to keep the brand out there. I want to spread our word. Um, this is great marketing for us. And there's somewhat of a margin here because I'm not utilizing my, my facility to some degree, but it wasn't great when you're getting charged 32% or somewhere in that range. I, I'm wondering if there's going to be kind of an evolution in the delivery model that is going to be a little more palatable for, for owners because it's not going away anytime soon. So that's just a, a side topic on that. The other thing was we kind of evolved with what we were offering from a product standpoint to be able to allow people to experience whimsy at home. Um, so we all started to deliver decorating kits where kids and families could decorate our cookies at home and, and share it on Instagram and things of that nature. Cause we'd never done that before. All of our, all of That's our, a great idea. Yeah. And, and Lori's um, very passionate and very particular about uh, the brand and the product. So it was never something that we really contemplated to have undecorated cookies out there with our name on it. But I will tell you those home kits were a huge hit, an absolutely huge hit, you know, and it's interesting with our franchisees and you, you always have to walk a little bit of a fine line when you're having these conversations. And I readily admitted to them that I thought I could make quick, great decisions immediately based on my experience, but I've never been through this. So we were, you know, every day we were, you know, getting new information and talking to owners and saying, you know, what do you feel like you want to do? Do you want to close and things of that nature to a person? They all wanted to stay open. And it wasn't from a business standpoint, to be honest with you. It's, Hey, we can do this safely. We're bringing some real joy to people in their homes and into their lives in a time like this. And we're willing to kind of, you know, gut through this and work through it and sacrifice because we want to be there with them on the other side. So our owners have been amazing, to be honest with you. Well, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, the look and the feel and how beautiful the locations are. Give me a description of, you know, when you walk into a Whimsy Cookie location, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What can people expect? Yeah, that's <laughs> what's the best way for me to describe it if you haven't seen it. It's a little bit like a fairy tale, to be honest with you. There's incredible furnishings. Everything is very lively from a color standpoint. Our, our, our core colors with our brand imagery is pink and white with metallic gold. We've got princess thrones in the stores where um, people take their pictures in there and post them. And it's just, it, it honestly just makes people smile. And, I, and I, when I see guests come in, I see kids come in and they go to the, you know, the case just full of all these different varieties People are just happy about it. It just makes you feel good. Well, it's interesting because, you know, and you guys are a younger franchise, as you, as you mentioned, you got eight franchise locations open, 12 in development in, in the South, uh, based out of Tennessee. One of the questions that I often get asked, and I'm sure you deal with on a daily basis is, how do you grow a model? I mean, how do you take a model that's got some good energy behind it, has a good product, and how do you grow it through a franchise type system? Obviously, I think in this case, you know, part of that is, you know, you're working through different digital mediums, social media, all that kind of stuff. Describe how that's been for Whimsy Cookie, kind of working through the marketing channels and getting the word out there to help get prospective franchisees who are interested in the brand. So you know, there's there's two components to that. There's um, getting the brand exposure for new operators that might be interested. We've got a number of different channels that we do that. It's it's probably very similar to a lot of organizations. We're working currently with a new franchise development group that we would like to bring on board. That'll be the first time using an outside source to generate franchise development. 
from a brand standpoint, and this won't surprise anybody who's listening, it's very difficult to market with a lot of strength when you're a young emerging franchisor. There's just not a lot of you know dollars on that front. And we're spread out geographically, so there's not a lot of efficiencies on that level. So I think some of the things that we really started to consider, and again, I've been a firm believer in this for years and years and years, you've got to nail your location and and you've got to put some real thought into that because your best marketing is going to be your location itself. And philosophies differ on that. Do I want to be in a high-end center that may be more boutique-y, but with high square uh, footage cost? Or do I want to go somewhere where there's just a lot of organic traffic where people's eyes can see our, our signage and things of that nature? So, And then you go into the other components of saying, well, how quickly can we handle scale? And how much would you consider partnering with someone who might control an entire market? And how does that affect quality? Does that person have the same passion? that maybe a single operator might have who, you know, has really poured their soul into this. So these are nothing new for franchisors and it's been struggle along these conversations for years and years and years. But, you know, we're at that point where all these things become very important to us. So what kind of franchisee are you looking for? I mean, are you looking for somebody to come in and develop a whole territory, a whole location, a multi-unit operator or more, you know, the single unit operator, but then even beyond that, what kind of background, what type of person, what type of group are you looking to come in and, and help uh, grow the franchise? Yeah, I will tell you, uh, you know, initially, all of our uh, franchise operators, they're here for the passion. And I think that's how most brands start. The early adopters are the ones that really buy in from a lifestyle and a, and a professional component. As we grow, for instance, we just put this out that we're looking for a market partner for the entire state of Louisiana. We surround the state of Louisiana. We've had some false starts, um, particularly in New Orleans when it came to obtaining real estate. So I think the thought for there is let's try to find a good partner to potentially build out the state because we've not done that before. And I think the key here, though, is they've got to be committed to the brand. It's not just an economic modeling component for someone to come in because you see that a lot, but we're willing to do it. And and I think we're excited about the possibility of really teaming up with somebody that's got the background, has the ability to build on a market in a timely fashion. Cause you know, as you well know, a a lot of systems get into multi-unit licensure sales with the plan to develop and and the development doesn't come as quickly as you'd like. And so now all of a sudden you've got prime markets locked up with nothing happening. So a lot of consideration to who that partner is, but we are definitely open to it. And of course we love our operators now. So having that really passionate single operator in their hometowns, working with the community, of course, is still going to be our core. And, you know, for somebody out there who's contemplating franchising their business, or perhaps just has, obviously you guys are, you're not new to franchising, but you are newer uh, to it. You know, what's, you know, there's lots of things that, that we all learn going through this process, but what would you say, you know, are, are some of the important things that Whimsy Cookie has learned through the franchising process? Um, and maybe some things that looking back, they might say, well, maybe we would have either done this a little bit differently or done this a little bit better had we known better. No. And, and, and I've, I've seen it in, the, in multiple iterations on, you know, the lessons learned. So I think my, my, my strongest advice would be do the heavy work up front 
at least have a proven concept, which you would you would think it would be at that point in time, but have everything truly documented into a system. And that comes from training. It comes into everything else because when you go too early and the systems aren't there, things are open for interpretation. And with interpretation comes deviation. And it's never typically intentional, but then you spend a lot of effort trying to kind of reel things back into the core concept. And that's always counterproductive. And sometimes it can lead to conflict within your own system. And just to finish up here, you've come from a lot of different systems. You have a great, you have great experience. You have a great background in franchising. What have you yourself learned about what you think makes a system great or gives them the possibility to really become great? You know, it's, I, I think um, I'm going to answer a different question because it's something that I talk about quite a bit, to be honest with you. And it's always the question of when you're talking to potential franchisees, what's the biggest takeaway that I would I'd want them to consider before embarking on this. And uh, regardless of how much you love the brand, regardless of what stage that brand is in, the systems, everything we just talked about, I feel like the one thing that I've noticed over the years is operators being honest with their own strengths, being very introspective on that front. Everyone that's doing this is successful to some degree or to an even large degree. And that doesn't necessarily always translate into uh, the operations that they're they're trying to take on. And sometimes I see the ego get in the way of, no, I was great at this, so I'm going to do all this myself. And that doesn't always work. So I always encourage franchisees to say, be very honest with yourself about where your strengths are and where they're not, and don't be afraid to hire to those weaknesses. I've seen it so many times where it's a, maybe a sales-driven environment with someone that came from, I'll just put it out there, IT, for instance. That's, I'm not singling that out. I'm just throwing that out there as an example, where that person may not necessarily interact on a consumer sales front as well, but they'll try to say, well, I can do this. I don't want to invest in this manager or whoever that may be, and it ends up being worse off. So yeah, just being honest about your strengths and weaknesses and make sure you fill that gap with quality people, I think is my best advice I can give somebody. Well, if you want to learn more about the Whimsy Cookie Company franchise, you can go to whimsycookieco.com forward slash franchise. That's whimsycookieco.com forward slash franchise. Thank you, John, for spending a few minutes with us today. Really interesting to learn about the Whimsy Cookie Company. You guys are off and running, it sounds like. And, and you know, we didn't even mention this, but you do have some some pretty famous uh, fans of yours. You know, it sounds like you've got you know, Reese Witherspoon and Tim McCraw and some others who like those sugar cookies. So there, there, there must be something good about them. <laughs> They're fantastic. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of Franchise Euphoria. If you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed the podcast in general, I would really appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. It really helps to get this podcast out to more and more people. So the easy way to do it is go to iTunes and in the search box, put in Franchise Euphoria. You will then see my cover art and you click on my smiling face that says Franchise Euphoria and then click on the link that says ratings and reviews. It's that simple, but boy, oh boy, does it mean the world to me when people leave ratings and reviews. And like I said, it really helps get the show out there. 
Once again, would love it if you would go to iTunes and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed this episode or other episodes of the show. And until the next time, happy franchising.